Was Paul's guest sermon at the synagogue a success or a failure? Well, on the one hand, most of the town turned out to hear him speak again the next week. But on the other hand, the synagogue leaders turned vicious. First they shouted him down, then they organized a posse to drive him out of town, in fact, out of the whole region. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. When you preach the Word of God, there's no telling what might happen. The same word that draws one person toward God turns another person against God and against His people. Let's turn now to Acts 13 and listen to Dr. Boyce. It's very funny sometimes the things that will come into your mind from the past that you've forgotten about for many, many years. Something like that happened to me this week as I was thinking about these verses that close Acts 13. I remembered a talk that was given in a Friday night InterVarsity chapter meeting during my college days when I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I don't remember all the details of the talk that was given, but I do know that it was about witnessing. And the point was being made that in order to witness effectively, you should make friends with those with whom you're trying to share the gospel. What I remember about it particularly, and I'm going to show in a minute why that has come to my mind now, is that the person who was giving the talk asked the question, how long does it take to make a friend? I recall how we went about answering that. We were college students, and we thought deeply about things, not superficially, the way older people might have thought or younger people might have thought, and we knew perfectly well that to make a friend takes a long time. Somebody I recall said, well, it depends, of course, but I suppose it takes several years to make a good friend. And apparently the leader who was giving the talk wasn't satisfied with that. He said, does it really take that long? And someone who was getting the drift of the way this was going said, no, maybe not necessarily. You might be able to make a good friend in six months or so. And he kept pressing, and we got it down to maybe a couple months. And finally, he got tired of what we were thinking. And he said, I don't think it takes any time at all. I think you can make a good friend in 30 minutes or five minutes, just as you run into somebody and strike up a conversation and realize that you have many things in common. And you know from that time on that you're friends with him. Many things to add to that, but the essential relationship is there. Well, I don't know why I remembered that over all these years, and as a matter of fact, I was quite sure that I had forgotten it. At least it had never occurred to me, and what I think has been all these years in between those days and this. But as I was looking at the latter half of Acts 13 and thinking about this church in Antioch that the apostles Paul and Barnabas had established on the first missionary journey, it occurred to me to ask the question, how long does it take to found a church. Now, we all know the answer to that. We are not superficial people. We know that you don't do things superficially or quickly and that everything should be done decently and in order and as long as possible. And so we take a great deal of time in these things. 
especially today. We very careful about where we're going to plant a church. We do demographic studies to know whether it's an area that's rising in its population or declining in its population. We want to know what kind of people live there, whether there's a nucleus for a church, whether it's likely to grow once you establish it. We take a long time to find the people that we want to establish the church, the pastors, and those who work with them. We have tests they take. We want to know whether they have the abilities, the, the talents, the gifts, the training that's going to make the work successful. We raise the money, and then we very carefully move into the area and lay groundwork and And when we've done all of that, we have our first meeting, and if the Lord blesses, the thing goes forward. It doesn't always do that even then. We've learned, I am sure, that it pays often to take that kind of care in establishing a church. The reason those questions go through my mind is that as I read these verses and discover what the apostles Paul and Barnabas did on this occasion— I find that in this case, at least, the establishing of the church took no more than one week. They moved into the area. They preached on one Sabbath. There was an interested response to their preaching. They were invited back. In the days that intervened, they undoubtedly talked in the city. And when they came back on the second Sabbath, people literally thronged the site. The gospel was preached, and as a result of that, a great church was established, one that lasted not only through their lifetime, but lasted really for hundreds of years as these Gentiles, because this was chiefly a Gentile church, the first church that really was chiefly Gentile. These Gentiles went on to follow Christ and to establish a church which in its turn became a missionary church to the rest of their world. Now, I know that I'm simplifying it a bit. It does say in verse 49 that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, and I guess that's the kind of phrase that embraces an indefinite period of time. Nevertheless, it's significant that what we are told of here is two Sabbaths, a Sabbath of initial preaching, a period of informal talking, conversing, witnessing, maybe canvassing in between, and then a second Sabbath, and then it was shortly after that that there was so much opposition to what was done that Paul and Barnabas had to move on, and they did, going on to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, the stories of which are recounted in the next chapter. Well, it's interesting. I'm not recommending it necessarily as a procedure. I do think it pays to take time and plan carefully what we do, especially when we have limited resources, but it does tell us that what God does in a situation like this does not necessarily depend upon us or the length of time or the preparation or the study or the expertise we may have. Here's a church that got started very quickly. Now, it's a continuing story. When we were looking at it last time, we were studying the first half of the chapter, and we saw there that Paul preached a great sermon that had to do with the person of Christ, his work, preceded by what God did in the Old Testament period leading up to it. And then he cited a number of texts that were fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Maybe that that sermon was a great deal longer than the one we have recorded in Acts, but this is certainly the gist of it, the outline. And it was significant that at the end of the preaching, those who heard them in the synagogue, that is a Jewish place of worship, 
in Antioch, invited them to come back the next week. They might have responded negatively. There were things here that they did respond to negatively eventually, but nevertheless they were invited back. And during that week that intervened between the first Sabbath and the second, this new gospel, this word that had begun to be preached on the first Sabbath, circulated around the town. When we come to the account here, beginning with verse 44, about the second Sabbath, we discovered that it was the whole city, that is, many, many people throughout this great city of Antioch that responded. Now, that was chiefly a Gentile city. Like many of these Gentile cities, it was a Jewish community. The Jewish community had its own synagogue and worshiped, and that's where Paul preached first. But the word was spreading among the Gentiles. And so when they came to the synagogue to respond to the invitation to preach again at the invitation of the Jewish leaders, well, there the place was thronged out by all the Gentiles, people that had not set foot inside the door of that synagogue previously. They came to hear what Paul and Barnabas might say. Now we ask the question, why did they come? What was it that stimulated their curiosity and their interest? Now, when I first began to think about that, I began to reflect on the kind of things that made the ministry of these two men in that day so different from a similar ministry in ours. In our day, people are surfeited with information. We have radio and television and newspapers and magazines. They really didn't have that in that day. When somebody came through from another city, the person was a source of information. People naturally thronged about them. And so I began to think about that. I said, well, here were people who came with something new. And so there must have been the same kind of curiosity for their message as the Athenians, for example, later had when Paul and his companions arrived in that great metropolis. They came out listening to hear what it might be that was new that they would say. And yet when I looked at this and began to study what the text itself says, I discovered that the interest was not at all in the novelty of these men. Nor was it, because my mind also went along these lines, in their eloquence or the dramatic presentation that they made. Sometimes people today get a hearing in that way. They say outlandish things. And as we well know, the newspapers and magazines and the television and the radio sometimes pick up on that, and for a short time, at least, religious news is vogue. And everybody's paying attention to these things, but it's only because it's outlandish. As I read these verses, it's not that either. Not that they had something novel, news from afar, not that they made some striking presentation or said outlandish things, but rather that the curiosity and interest of the people of Antioch was provoked, this is very important, pay attention to it, provoked by the Word of God. I'm not making that up, you see. That's the emphasis of the text. Look at it. Four times in this short period of verses, this is what is said. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You might say, well, they gathered to hear the word of Paul. Well, perhaps so, but it doesn't say that. Or perhaps you say they gathered to hear the word of Barnabas. Yes, maybe so, but it doesn't say that. 
says they gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's what these men had preached earlier. It's what they had come to preach, and it's what they preached again. And that is what stimulated the interest of the people. Again, you find it in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, saying, We had to speak the word of God to you first. So Paul and Barnabas were conscious of the fact that that's what they had come to deliver. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Not the word of Paul, not the word of Barnabas, but the word of the Lord. And then again in verse 49, the verse that immediately follows, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. That's remarkable, and that's important. It's important by its emphasis. What stimulated the interest of the people was the word of the Lord as the Holy Spirit blessed it. When I think about that, I can't help but reflect negatively on what passes for so much preaching or teaching in our day. So much of it is geared to what we call felt needs. So much of it is geared to stimulate curiosity or interest by using the world's methods, the world's devices. Paul and Barnabas didn't have any of those things. I am well aware that there are times when the Holy Spirit leads and blesses, and there are times when the proclamation of the gospel seems to fall on deaf ears. Sometimes it's possible to do the right thing and, humanly speaking, not find results. There have been many faithful people who have preached the Word of God, and so far as we can tell, they've done it for a long period of time with very minimal response. Certain areas of the world are like that. And yet that is no excuse for abandoning the commission. The commission is to take the word of God into all the world. Paul and Barnabas did this. Sometimes as they took it to a city, they were received, and a church was established. At other times, they came into an area and the word was rejected, as it was here, by the Jewish leaders, but they persisted in the task. Where they did it and where the Holy Spirit was at work, here and there, very frequently in their day, people found their curiosity stimulated and their interest drawn. And they came to that preaching of the Word and said, what is it? What is it that you're teaching? We want to hear about these things. So that was the first new element here, the fact that there was great interest on the part of the Gentiles as God blessed the Word. There hadn't been anything quite like that earlier. We have the preaching in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit blessed, and many Jews responded. We had Philip going down along the coast and witnessing one-on-one to the Ethiopian, and we saw how the church got established in Antioch of Syria and how there was a mixture of leadership and how the teaching went forward. And We saw the missionary journey to Cyprus and so on, and all that time there was preaching and there was response, but there's never been anything quite like this. Here for the first time, we see this great response to the gospel, and so it's worth noting. But now, secondly, there's something else that's also worth noting, and that was Jewish reaction to the preaching. We read that they were filled with jealousy, verse 45, and that they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Now, why did they do that? We reflected earlier on why the Gentiles were responding. Let's ask the same question of why the Jews were turning down the message and speaking against it. There are a number of reasons. For one thing, the very way in which the gospel was presented certainly indicated to these Jewish leaders in this far-off area that their leaders in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, had rejected this Jesus. 
Paul had come proclaiming that he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, but their own leaders in Jerusalem had not responded. This would not be lost on them. It is true that they invited Paul to come back, but they must have been thinking about these things. This perhaps is one reason why they were resistant. Again, Paul had said something negative, at least they would have conceived it as being negative, about the law. Jews were wrapped up in the law, the Torah. Their life was the Torah, learning the law, trying to figure out what the law meant, obeying the law. And yet, Paul had said, verse 39, in the midst of his sermon on the previous Sabbath, through him, that is, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Well, that, of course, is simple truth. Nobody is saved by law. All law can do is condemn you. We've all broken the law. So you can't be saved by trying to keep it. The law condemns. And if anybody is trying to get to heaven by obeying the law, well, they're destined to fail in that. And that's all Paul was pointing out, he was saying, and he knew it from his own experience because he had been a Pharisee. He'd lived through these things. He had tried to keep the law, but he knew that he couldn't do it. Oh, he had thought he was righteous back in the days of his zealous adherence to Judaism, But he came to see that the things that he was trying to do were actually keeping him from the way of salvation because they were making him self-righteous. And so they were keeping him from Christ. The law doesn't justify, the law condemns. And he was trying to point out, as he did on every occasion, and as he points out in all his epistles, that justification is through the work of Christ and by faith in him only. But here were the Jews listening to that, and they would have said, I suppose, as they began to reflect on these things, well, here is a man who is preaching against the law of Moses. Now, they had said that about Jesus previously. He had said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But the very fact he had to defend himself in the matter indicates what they were thinking. They were saying, because he didn't treat the law as they did, he has come to tear down our traditions. And Jesus said, you see, I have come to save the world. I come to call people to faith in me, but not to tear down the law, because those who come to me fulfill it in spirit and in truth, which these adherents to Judaism were unable to do. But the same thing that was said of Jesus was undoubtedly said of Paul, and they would have been thinking negative thoughts for that reason. All of that to the contrary, however, it seems to me that what bothered them here was not so much that their leaders in Jerusalem had rejected Jesus, or that Paul had said something that they might have construed as a negative comment on the law, but rather the fact that the Gentiles were coming in such large measures. That's been the problem all along, you see. They didn't mind. They hadn't really cared in the other cities either. If the Gentiles came and sat in the back of the synagogue and paid attention and perhaps became good Jews in time, through the rite of circumcision and everything else that was involved. That was all right. They were glad to have that. That's the way Presbyterians are glad to have people come and sit in the pew and eventually become Presbyterians, and Baptists are glad to have people come and sit in the pew and eventually become Baptists, and Episcopalians are glad to have people come and sit in the pew and become Episcopalians, and so on. But, you see, they didn't want the Gentiles coming as Gentiles, being received on exactly the same basis as they thought they were being received as Jews. Here was this man coming to preach a gospel centered in one whom he claimed was their Messiah, who apparently was now opening 
the gate of salvation to all who should come regardless of their nationality. This is what had been happening during the week between the two Sabbaths. We're told at the end of the first Sunday that many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. That is, Jews and Gentiles followed him, and they asked many questions. They would have asked how a person could be saved, and what was the grounds for salvation, and what you had to do first in order to qualify. And Paul, who certainly preached a gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, did not tell the Gentiles that they first of all had to become Jews. A little later, we're going to find it, not very much further on here in Acts. In fact, we're going to find it in the 15th chapter. This is the battle that he fought out in Jerusalem in the first great council of the church. Jews wanting the Gentiles to become Jews first of all before they could be saved. Paul and those who had traveled with him arguing just as strenuously that you become saved through faith in Christ and you don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to become something else. What you become through faith in Christ is a Christian. You become a Christ one. It doesn't mean that you can go your own way and do your own thing. You begin to follow Christ, but the door to Christ is not the door of Judaism or the door of a Protestant church or a Catholic church or anything else. The door is Jesus Christ, and you must follow him. And that's what Paul contended for. Nothing else could do that. And here on this Sabbath were all these Gentiles. I guess they wouldn't have minded if there had been a few more than normal. We'll come to here. After all, you're glad to have your church fill up. And if they had been very respectful and had listened to the Jewish leaders and said, what must we do? But you say they didn't do that. They were there to hear this gospel. That's why Luke says they were jealous. They were jealous of the Gentiles and their response, and they spoke against what Paul was saying. So Paul answered them. And here we see a great decision made by Paul and a great principle laid down that he was to follow in virtually every city where he preached the gospel from this time forth. He said to these Jews, it was right for us to speak the word of God to you first. We had to do it, he says. It was necessary for us. The reason, of course, is that he was a Jew and he had to speak to his own people first And because when The Lord gave the Great Commission, particularly the one we have recorded in the book of Acts. He said, begin in Jerusalem, that is, with Jews. Our equivalent of that, if we're Gentiles, is beginning where we are. I don't think this means necessarily that we Gentiles, if we're Gentiles, are to begin, first of all, with Jews. I don't think that's a proper application of it. You begin where you are, and you go from there. But Paul was a Jew, and it had started in Jerusalem. And so when he went about preaching the gospel, he went, first of all, to the synagogues, which incidentally was a very sensible thing to do because there he had a group of people that were already versed in the Old Testament and were interested in spiritual things. And if he was going to reach Gentiles, the most spiritually minded Gentiles were in the synagogue. So it made great sense. But you see, he said we had to begin there, and so we did. He said, as he goes on to explain it, if you reject it when it's been presented, when your Messiah is presented to you, then we will go to the Gentiles. Because this gospel is not a Jewish gospel exclusively. It is a gospel for the whole world. And Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, when he spoke to his apostles, all of whom were Jews, said, begin at Jerusalem, and then go from there into Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. 
They might have said, I guess, as they responded to it, but that isn't the way it should be. And Paul had the answer. He quoted from their own scripture, in this case from Isaiah 49, 6, saying to them, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They were to be the light. They were to be a vehicle through whom this message was proclaimed. But if they would not proclaim it, the word of God would not be bound. The Messiah would not remain hidden from the Gentiles. And he, a Jew himself, would take the gospel to them. It's interesting, isn't it, that that first part, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, is something Simeon, the old man, quoted when he first saw Jesus Christ at the time of his nativity. His father and mother were bringing him up to the temple, and Simeon was there. And he greeted them, and he took this young child in his arms, and he praised God because God had told him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's anointed. And here he was. And then he used these words, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Simeon, the aged Jew in Jerusalem, at the time of the dedication of the infant child, saying, this child is to be a light for the Gentiles. And here was Paul now quoting this and saying that that's what he had come to do, to carry the gospel to this Gentile community. The wonderful thing about this is that when the gospel was proclaimed, these Gentiles did believe it. We're told a number of things about them. First of all, they heard it, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord. I think it means they believed it and obeyed it. The fifth of the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and your mother. One thing that involves is obeying them. And so when these Gentiles honored the word of the Lord, it means they obeyed it. And the word of the Lord called for faith in Christ, and so they had faith in Christ. They believed on him. That's the first thing. And then secondly, we're told that the word of God spread through the whole region. That means that they immediately became witnesses. It's an incidental point here, but one that's not to be passed over, that when Luke says the word of God spread through the whole region, he's being really very accurate in describing this community. William Ramsey, whom I mentioned before, has pointed this out, saying that an inscription has been discovered in Antioch describing a centurion, that is, a soldier who was over a hundred other soldiers, and he is described there in this inscription as being a regionary centurion. What that means is that this word region is not just a general term, like we might say the neighborhood, but it was a technical term. This was the region of Antioch. It was a Roman term, and the centurion that was appointed to be in control of the region was called a regional centurion. And now this is what Luke says. The word of God spread throughout the whole region. It shows that he has accurate information, what he's talking about. He's getting the terms exactly right. At any rate, this is where the gospel spread, and it's spread by those, those Gentiles, you see, who first came to believe on Jesus Christ this week as a result of Paul's preaching. I want you to see something else. Right in the middle of that, between the words that say they honored the word, that is, believed it, and took the word to others, verse 49, you have, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Isn't it interesting, in the middle of this account, that there you'd have a statement of election, that those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And right in the middle of a great evangelistic story, 
For people who see that to be a contradiction, they can't imagine how, if God appoints men and women to eternal life, that is, deciding who will be saved and then saving them, they can't understand how, if that is true, anybody should be an evangelist or a witness, because the argument would go, if God's going to save them, God will save them anyway. And so what I do doesn't matter. Or if it depends on me, well, then it depends on me, and you mustn't talk of God's election. Actually, it doesn't work that way. And those who have the greatest faith in God's electing power are those who, by the grace of God, throughout history, have also proved to be the greatest evangelists. All of the great missionary pioneers, virtually all of the great missionary pioneers, were Calvinists in their theology, which meant that they believed in election. You say, well, why did they go out to evangelize then if they believed that God was going to save people anyway? Well, this isn't quite the way to put it. If God is going to save someone, God is going to save them, and they will be saved. But it's not quite correct to say that God will save them anyway, because when we say God will save them anyway, what we mean by that is God will save them apart from our witness. And that is not true. The God who appoints the ends also appoints the means, and the means is our witness. Just as in prayer, God promises to answer and to give what we need, but we are to pray for it. So we're to be witnesses. Jesus said, go into all the world with the gospel. Teach everyone. Call them to faith. But as you go, know that God will work through that to bring to faith those whom he has before appointed. I sometimes say, I don't know how you can do it any other way, at least not in the thinking manner. Suppose it doesn't depend on God. Suppose it depends on you. Suppose people are saved because you're eloquent or because you have the right answers or because you happen to be in the right place at just the right time, entirely apart from God. I don't know how anybody can live with that because it means, you see, if you don't have the right answers, if you're not in the right place, if you don't present it in just the right way, if you're inadvertently offensive, well, then they're going to be at hell and it's your fault. I don't know how anybody can live with that. But if you believe that God has appointed some for eternal life, and that as you testify, God will use that testimony to bring them to faith so that those who are appointed to eternal life believe, then, why, it takes the burden off and witnessing becomes what it really should be. It becomes a joy, as it obviously was for Paul and Barnabas. A joy, yes, but that gospel is also something that produces persecution, and there was persecution, We're told in the last section here that the Jewish leaders stirred up God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, that is, people of influence, and these stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas so that they were expelled from the region. There's that technical term again. They had to leave that area. They had to pass on to Iconium. Yes, they were expelled. And they left. They shook off the dust from their feet as a testimony against those who were rejecting the gospel. But although they were repulsed, the church that had been established in that short period of time was not subdued. On the contrary, it was well established, and it went on to thrive and become one of the great churches of the ancient world. What did it? Well, it wasn't the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas. They weren't there for very long. And it wasn't the great spiritual perception or understanding of the early Christians because they could hardly have had much. They hadn't even had much time to be taught. But Paul and Barnabas did come back through the region later, 
and try to ground them further in the faith. It wasn't that. It was the word of the Lord. That's what makes a church strong, the word of the Lord. That's what makes an individual Christian strong, the word of the Lord. And that's why we spend so much time thinking about it. Do you do it? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you lay it up in your hearts? Do you meditate upon it? That's what we're called to do because it's only as we do that that we are strong. Let us pray. Our Father, we would pray that what happened here in this city of Antioch might happen among us as well, that in spite of persecution or even the difficulties that attend the proclamation of the gospel, there might be such a love of your word and such a feeding upon it that we ourselves become established and that you would bless us and make us strong. And then as we are strengthened in spiritual things, not in the wisdom of men or in the eloquence of men or women, but as we are strengthened in spiritual things in your word, that we might then become witnesses to those about, as these early Christians obviously were. And we ask you to bless our witness, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, and because you have promised ever to let your word return unto you void. We pray in Jesus' name. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C, 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.